Welcome to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep will talk with some of the smartest thinkers in business to help make you more successful in your professional and personal life. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here on Amazing Business Radio on CBS. And today, we are going to be talking with Maxine Clark, who is one of the true innovators in the retail industry. She has an amazing story to tell. Uh, You may know of probably one of her big successes, which is Build-A-Bear workshops. There are over 400 Build-A-Bear workshops around the world, and she founded this company back in 1997. She is the founder and former chief executive bear because as of just last year, she stepped down, but she's doing so much now. It doesn't mean she retired. I think she is probably busier now than when she was the chief executive bear. And by the way, I love that title. Uh, She has also been considered in all the accolades that she gets are amazing, but I think this one's pretty powerful. One of the 25 most influential people in retailing. And in 2013, Build-A-Bear Workshop was named the Fortune Best Companies to Work For, not just once, but five years in a row. She has created an amazing culture in her organization. People want to work there. They love to work there. And there's obviously a reason we're going to get into that. She's also very philanthropic. She's on uh, many board of directors of companies, but she's very involved. And I know of just one because I've worked with her on this, and that's Teach for America. But she does much more than that. So we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Maxine Clark. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am so glad to be here, too, with you. And we're going to start off by talking about you. And just, you know, let's talk about your story. Where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? You know, what's your background? Well, I'm, I'm from Miami, Florida. That's where I grew up. And I had a wonderful upbringing in a... I probably a lower middle class family, but we never talked about things like that. So I always felt like I had all the things that were necessary. I got to interrupt you for a moment. You're from Miami, Florida. Right. Okay. But you're now living in St. Louis. What in the (laughs) heck happened that made that decision? I was transferred here by the May Department Stores uh, when I worked for. I went to work for them out of college. Oh, okay. So, and, but but back to your your yeah, youth so and childhood. You grew up there. Okay. And my mother was um, a. very engaged community citizen. She uh, worked at and helped found a school for children with Down syndrome, but at the time it was called uh, mongoloidism. And my mother instilled in me um, early how important it is to share with others that may have less than you. And uh, that was just the way our family was run. My mother is also a civil rights activist, and we spent a lot of time in things like making sure everybody registered to vote, as well as um, taking a bus ride, um, just a casual bus ride. I, I laugh at that because we went from Miami to Selma, Alabama about 50 years ago. Really? And I uh, had a uh, an amazing experience at that. So in our family... Were you there for yeah, the moment? Not for, mean, the, not for the bloody Sunday moment, but several weeks later when they actually did make uh, the march across with thousands and thousands of other people. Uh, so it was a, quite an amazing experience. But I, t- I certainly didn't understand it as well, as well then because it was such a part of our life. I understood it much more recently here in St. Louis and in Ferguson, Missouri with all that's gone on. It's had a tremendous impact on me. Um, and I'm glad that I was doing those things as a young person. I took a lot of that for granted as a young person. You know, you just, the way you're raised is the way you're raised. And there were always people of much, many backgrounds in our home. Uh, and my mother interacted them on a daily basis. So I'm, I'm forever thankful uh, that I was raised in an in a environment that encouraged diversity. And my mother and father both taught me that I could be everything I wanted to be. Um, although they didn't necessarily have the financial wherewithal to ensure that that happened. Um, they made sure I w- lived in a neighborhood where I could get a great education, and I had phenomenal teachers. And it was mostly my teachers, I would say, more so than my parents, because I graduated from high school in 1967. Uh-oh, now do the math. You look a lot younger. Oh, thank you. Much, thank you. much, thank much, you. much I, younger. I feel younger, <laughs> but I graduated in 1967, and not every girl was going to college. And certainly not every young woman was going to be a lawyer or a business person or a CPA. Uh, pretty much the area that, that was very comfortable was teaching, social work, secretary, and nursing. Uh, and I didn't want to do any of that. I wanted to do all the things that uh, women didn't do in those days. I was at the cusp of the women's movement, but also of the changing um, of the 
of the way we thought about all kinds of rights of all kinds of people, including women. And Title IX was a few years away. Um, by the time I graduated from college, uh, Title IX was just getting kicked off. And I was very active in college and all of those issues as well. Because when I went to school, you could you had to wait till you were 21 to vote. And that changed too, um, just after I got out of college. And I've never missed an election. College? I went to the University of Georgia in okay. Athens, Georgia. I was a... Um, I wanted to be a civil rights attorney, but I went to, to journalism school. I was the editor of my high school newspaper. I love to write. I love to take up issues and study them and write about them. And I always had an opinion. You can be sure of that. And um, I um, wanted. I thought I might someday go into journalism, but I knew as a lawyer I would have to learn to be a better writer and a, and a better communicator. And so um, University of Georgia had a fantastic school of of. Uh, Journalism. So you were pretty smart growing up. Your parents were a great influence. They actually exposed you to a lot of who you are today, because who you are today is a very giving person. Uh, diversity is is not an issue, uh, which it should never be an issue. But it's brought so so much. You know, it's up today. And you mentioned Ferguson and all that's going on there. Talk about a diversity issue. Uh, but in your life and in, and in your company, as I've noticed, there's. I, it's and you know what it's natural and that's the way it should be and your parents helped make that natural right it was it was just the way we lived as a family my parents were first generation um, in this country and um, I'm the first person in my family and my cousins and my um, my sister uh, to go to college my sister was younger than me so I was the first one to graduate from college and have um, a great future ahead of me. So I feel very fortunate that that opportunity was presented to me. Uh, and I've, t I've used it, you know, I, Jim Collins writes about return on luck. And I have certainly given all of those experiences that I've had in my life, those aha moments that you didn't ne necessarily know were aha moments then, um, they're full course because they have impacted me. And even the littlest things that you sometimes don't think about when they're happening to you, for me, have always been mag magnified. Uh, I am an observer of life and of people and of situations. And I try to learn from everybody that I come in contact with. And, and even as you and I meet in the airplanes, uh, airports and talk, um, I almost always walk away with something that that day um, it sort of becomes solidified in my head. And when I'm speaking to young people and talking about business and talking about the importance of, of service and culture, whether it's to your community or to your company, I often think, think of the things that we just talked about in an airport. Right. You and I just seem to run, That's the, the, this is special, us hanging out together right. somewhere outside of an airport or on an airplane, <laughs> right. which is good. Your sister, she went on to college and uh, what it, she is, is successful and as smart as you because well, I usually think she's successful uh, differently. success breeds success. And uh, No, I mean, my sister and I were never really very close. She um, uh, was a mom of three daughters and spent uh, the majority of her years um, raising them, and now she's retired and uh, back living in Florida. Uh, but we didn't have very much in common, and we, we, all we grew up in the same house. I actually had a lot more in common with other people that were my friends and people that I adopted as family, uh, because that was also a part of our family. There were so many people that were in our house all the time, whether it was our neighbors or people that came from my mother's work that came to our home that I used to call aunt or uncle, or I thought they were my cousins when in reality, they weren't blood relatives, but we were so close and we shared so many life experiences and conversations. It was always okay in our family to have a, a confrontational conversation. I don't mean yelling and angry, but of differing viewpoints. And that's really what diversity is. It's an opportunity to bring people together that may not agree with you so that you can learn from them. And you can change your opinions. The more knowledge you have uh, and the more experience that you have with different situations, you do change. I saw, So when I hear about politicians who move from well, if they move one month away and they have a new opinion, I don't necessarily right, go along probably, with that. Uh, <laughs> but, but, I, but when I see that they've changed over the course of their long political career, I, I expect they would. Right. Because life has changed. And yeah, if you aren't you, flexible. You, you amass knowledge and then eventually yeah. experience gives you wisdom. So um, I want to talk about some of those people because I get, uh, that, you, that you met with that have influenced you. But before I do that, I want to make sure that everybody understands the, the quick story on who you are and, and how you got to where you are today. You, you left college right. with a journalism degree, but you didn't go into journalism. No, I didn't. I was actually going to go to law school, but I had to go to work to, to afford to go to law school. And Washington, D.C. had a lot of law schools. So I moved to Washington, D.C. I got a job with the heck company in Washington, D.C., which was part of the May department stores. Okay, in that's where it all started. In the executive training program. And I had such a wonderful experience, very short Shortly after I joined, probably within six weeks, Stanley Goodman, who was the chairman of the May Company, came to talk to us as a group of young executives. 
and he made a statement that I just, it just resonated for me. He said, retailing is entertainment and the store is a stage. And when the customer has fun, they spend more money. And that's something I know that you get because that's really what we talk about when we talk about customer experience and the customer um, uh, uh, interaction. As, you know, as you've told me many times, you can't have an interaction, a transaction right. you know, and without that's an interaction. The, I remember you said, I love that interaction versus transaction. And, and it's, it's a big so difference. True. It's really what Stanley mm-hmm. Goodman said in fewer words. Mm-hmm. And I just decided that day, this, I was in the right place. This was the most perfect place for me to go to work. And I was very successful. I was a buyer in a very short period of time. I was moved. I was transferred to St. Louis to work for David Farrell here in St. Louis. Very quickly, I um, that was the one of those big turning points in your life where you don't. I didn't intend to live in St. Louis forever. I thought I'd come here for a few years and go back out to one of the department stores. But I ended up working for Dave for several years, and then they promoted me to a job at, at um, Venture, which was the discount right, store division, discount stores. which was a phenomenal experience. And then I came back to Famous Bar to be the executive vice president for merchandising for Famous Bar. But I really missed going uh, the discount. I was much more creative. I loved venture. I went back there as the EVP of merchandising and marketing. And then the May company split off venture from the May department stores as a separate public right. company. And they, I had to stay there for two years. It was part of the deal. But as soon as those two years were over, the May company called me and asked me if I would like to go to work for them as the president of Payless Shoe Source, which was one of the divisions of the May company at the time that I had helped uh, May uh, acquire in 1979 when I was on the corporate staff. So it almost was like a family business to me. I knew the owners. Uh, Shale and Lewis poses were like family to me. Um, I had gotten to know them during the acquisition process. So while I gave it a little bit of a hesitation, do I really want to go live in Topeka, Kansas? The answer to that was no. So you went from Miami to St. Louis to Topeka. And now to <laughs> yes, I had a that was a great experience. But Where could four, the next city have been? <laughs> yeah, well, if I wanted to stay in the make company, I could have moved to many cities. But I I loved being in the shoe business. Um, shoes were my passion because as a small person in stature, the only item I could ever go in a store and buy and not have to alter was shoes was my favorite thing, and I loved. Um, working for the May Company, I couldn't have, most days of my career, I felt I should be paying them, not them paying me. It was that wonderful of a career. I learned so much. I sat in on board meetings and many met so many wonderful and intelligent and creative people in the course of buying and selling merchandise, traveled all around the world. I never would have done that. And so, but it came to the point where it was really an opportunity for me to decide what is it that I really wanted to be when I grew up. I knew that Dave was retiring, and as were a lot of the leaders of the May Company at the time. And it was a chance for me to come back to St. Louis and say, what would I want to do with my life? What do I want to do? And I thought, I knew I wanted to open up my own business at this point. I thought that I could that the fun had gone out of the business the way Stanley said it should be in the business and that it was up to me to kind of keep it going. I thought about going to law school um, at the After time. After you had a storied career right. at the May I did. Company, I thought, well, thought, okay, I'll go back to I school. I thought I would do that, and I, I was thinking about it, but then I realized I'm really good at this, and I love it. How many people can really say they love what they do every day? And that was me, and I, so I started looking for a business I could buy. It was 1990, late 1996, and there were lots of things happening. Internet businesses were coming up, and, the, every, and people were trying to lure me to go to work in one of their businesses. I got calls from ma- major companies as well as people who were funding startups. But I didn't want to do uh, um, a business at that time that was no human interaction. I felt the computer and the internet was very important, to, going to be really important to retail, but that it wasn't going to be the only way that women were going to shop. And it was up to me, who understood engagement and uh, interaction with customers that Stanley had taught me so well to keep this going. And ultimately, that idea, that that knowledge and that concern um, manifested itself in, in what we created at Build-A-Bear Workshop. So how did you come up with the concept of Build-A-Bear? That's a great story, really. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to come back on that one because I want everybody to know this story about Build-A-Bear. And I also still want to talk about some of the people that have influenced you. You've already mentioned a couple, but I know uh, there's some strong other personalities in your life that have been important. This is Shep Hyken. We're with Maxine Clark. This is Amazing Business Radio on CBS and Play It. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here. We're back on Amazing Business Radio with Maxine Clark, the founder of Build-A-Bear Workshops and the former chief executive bear. And she's going to share with us how Build-A-Bear came to be. Right. Well, I was actually, um, so many things that you, that you do, you aren't even really paying attention with, but or attention to, but I had left my job at, pa- at Payless Shoe Source and moved back to St. Louis uh, to start another business. I didn't exactly know what it was going to be, but I did know it was going to be for kids because kids required you to be creative. And I could feel the cusp of what was coming in the internet and technology. And how could we create a company for the 21st century that really had ultimate flexibility? Uh, the way you treated your associates and the way you treated your customers would be uh, valued. It was time for that. People were feeling um, the economy was, you know, moving forward, but but everybody was feeling, um, you know, uh, like that there was no limit in sight. Right. 96, 97, the stock market was flying yeah. and it was primarily due to the dot-coms. Yeah. So much was happening. But I knew that as a retailer and a person who loved shopping, that you couldn't just have all these young people coming out and inventing businesses where they'd never interacted with a human being before. Otherwise, they were going to make robots and systems that didn't work, which is what exactly happened at first. So I was out... Um, a couple of things. I, I had spent a little bit more time with my friends and uh, family here, and I w- went off to a friend's graduation at from Amherst College, and I remember walking with her in the different dorms and seeing that every kid had a teddy bear in their room, male or female. It was from a sorority party or a fraternity party or his girlfriend gave it or it was their childhood teddy bear. And I noticed that. It was just because I had a teddy bear that I really cared about. And I thought that it was really interesting because in my day, I was never in a guy's dorm. They didn't allow us. But I doubt any of the guys I knew would have brought their teddy bear to college. And I saw this was a different changing population, a lot more um, uh, willing to show their feelings and their, their warm fuzzies, so to speak. Come home, and I'm thinking about some business ideas. I was working on an education retail concept that I thought could really make a difference. And one day, I, was, I picked up my next-door neighbor children, who I was very close with, and we went from school to um, to the toy store in our neighborhood, and they were looking. Beanie Babies were really hot then; they were very popular. And we thought they might have some in stock because there was a sign in the window that said we did. But we got in the store, and they didn't. And Katie, who was ten years old at the time, was pretty upset about it. And not she didn't get upset about much, but she said, "You know, these are so easy; we could make these." And she meant go home to my house and do a craft project in the basement, which we often did together. But for me, the light bulb immediately went off, and I said, oh, my gosh, we can do that in a store. We went home. She went downstairs to the basement and got out the stuff to make the supplies, and I sat at my computer. And at those days, you couldn't Google. You had to Netscape it. Okay. And I looked to see if I could find any factories in the United States to buy that you I could transfer. You were already sourcing product uh, or the materials the idea. needed. <laughs> well, 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 a lot of the people that I was working with, some of the venture capital people that were looking and talking to me about investing in, in a business idea I had, kept encouraging me to buy a business, an existing business, and use it as collateral. That way you have a lot more to start with. So I said, that was the first thing I did. Let me see if there's one that exists like this. And I did find a couple that were still manufacturing in the United States. And I went to meet with those people, but they ultimately didn't think the idea had any merit, and they didn't want to sell their business to me. And when I told that to Katie, she said, well, why don't we do it? And I think if she had not said that to me, I'm not sure that's the path I would have gone. I will never know that. But because she was so engaged in the idea and her little brother Jack also, and we named the animals and we had this whole vision in our head so that when I went to my branding company that I was going to use to help me come up with a name, I really had a very clear vision in my head. Yellow, red, blue, the colors were all there. And how old was Katie? She was 10. 10 years old and she's saying... Why don't we do this? And, you're and it's just the way a, a child thinks. But Isn't that's, that great? But if we all did, I think we'd see a different perspective on our businesses because they just don't take stuff for granted. They want to know why and how and you know when and uh, like most children. And we 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 sometimes as business people kind of kick the kid out of ourselves right. or somebody else does. And I try to encourage young people to make sure they always keep their kid think uh, and that they uh, look at problem solving from the way you would do it as a child when you either didn't know anything about it I think whatsoever. that's the key. The obstacles aren't in your mind. Right. You know, today there's, oh, I'll tell you why I can't do this. And a child many times, not all of them, but most of them are thinking, well, why can't I do this? Right, you know? and I think it's such an important perspective, even if you don't think children are your customers, which they ultimately probably are in a lot of ways. And I was always an observer of customer service because um, I wanted to be appreciated when I spent money, 
and I also appreciated my customers and all levels of the retail business that I was in over time for them giving us our money, their money, when they had so many other alternatives. And so what makes them decide to buy a pair of shoes that pay less than at Walmart or at Baker's or some other store that existed at the time? Or what makes them decide to come into Build-A-Bear and spend their money discretionary money when they have other things that they might want or need in their life. And I think that's the fun of it. And that was the fun that I learned all the way back starting out in retailing from Stanley Goodman is that if the customer has fun, they will spend more money. And I know that's how I was when I was shopping. If even when I went in to buy a, a dress to go to a, on a date, I always, it was memorable. It was something, and if the sales associate remembered that and helped you, you know, you had a connection now with that salesperson. Right, and you want to go back. You want, and you want to go back. And you want to spend more money with that person and that store. That's right. And you'll never forget that person because they now play a part in your life. And, you're, and I, this is a true story that happened to me here in St. Louis. I went up to, I was, my, my current, my husband now, but he was not my husband then, uh, asked me out to go on a date. And I went upstairs to the, in Northwest Plaza, which doesn't really exist anymore, to the limited store there. And the woman that was the manager was a wonderful person. And um, I told her what I was looking for. And I said, I, I love red. And she picked out this dress for me. And it was the most perfect dress. And I have a picture of myself wearing this dress on our date. And I, whenever I think about that, when I think about our anniversaries, Lori is in that picture with me. And she wasn't in the picture technically, but she was in the picture. And when we run into each other, and we do from time to time, it's always a big hug because she knows that she had a, a huge um, part in that, that date, that first date. So you, you can't pay for that. I mean, that is an, uh, that's a, a priceless commodity, a person who was a manager of a store that spent time getting to know you and what you liked and what you cared about and wanted to know how the date went. And, wanted to, and, and we don't necessarily, that's not encouraged in all companies right. to have a connection with somebody because there's now so many choices to go shopping that you, you can buy something online. You never talk to a person. But in those days, and it wasn't that long ago, but it was in re recent times, and it was a great store. It was a limited. They certainly knew how to hire and train great people and to make that experience as a shopper, my own, a memorable one. So that's the difference, by the way, between a transaction and an interaction. You had an interaction, and an interaction doesn't have finality. It's part of a whole process, and it's a, a relationship a right, process. Right. And it, it's great. And I would imagine that if she would have gone on to work at a different store, you would have gone to wherever she was because that's how good she was, which is why uh, it's not what we're here to talk about today, but a great lesson mm -hmm. is when you get somebody good and they can manage that experience, don't let them go right. because your well, customers are not only loyal to your stores, right. they're loyal to the people that work in those stores. Right. Well, actually, Lori, did, we did work together. She came to work for Famous Bar, and I came to work at Famous Bar as well, and we did end up working together, and she was an incredibly talented person. So it, the relationship did move on, and um, but it was – I, I – on so many times when I'm thinking about how much I love my husband and how we met and people ask us that story she is in that picture and she knows that you know it's a it's a nice we, we haven't stayed close but we run into each other and there's that that you know kind of aha moment of connection that she taught me actually and I've cherished ever since and I try to remember that when I'm interacting with the customers of Build-A-Bear young customers from Build-A-Bear that it's not that's, just about a one-time experience right that's great all right so back to Build-A-Bear you were you were, you know, with your 10-year-old <laughs> giving you advice. That's outstanding. And you decided to do this. Yes. And within about nine months, we had the first store open. And a lot of the people... That's quick. That, that was fast. A lot mm -hmm. of the people... But I had such a clear vision. You know, it's sometimes people... When I speak to young people at college that want to be entrepreneurs, they, they don't necessarily know what they want to do. They just don't want to work for somebody else. Or they want to be rich, and they think that's the way to do it. And but because I had was I was actually 48 years old when I started Build-A-Bear, so I wasn't a young spring chicken, but I had a lot of experience and I had a lot of contacts. And so I could go to those people to help me, whether it was for logistics, it was for producing product, it was for marketing, any of those things. I had a, I had a very large network of people, and they all helped me ha make it happen very, very quickly. Uh, and it was an instant success. Uh, people were waiting outside the door uh, to come into the store. They just knew they wanted to be there, and a lot of it had to do with the way we designed it because it was welcoming, it was bright, it was cheery, and it was for children. And it was fun. It was definitely fun, was but fun. you didn't know that when until you came in. But I mean, literally, we opened on a Sunday night. We had a big party at the Galleria. We opened up to my friends and family. And the next morning, I kind of was you know, walking in the store. I was really excited for our first real day of business on a Monday morning. And it was in October. And it was 
the, there was a line out the door. I, where did all these people come from? Because there was school was in session, but there were adults that had heard about it and from a friend. Somebody had gone home from this party and called them and said, the you've got to go before. see it. Yes, and you've got to go wow. see the store. And then by the weekend, we were we could barely handle the traffic when children came out of school. Wow. And it was such so, such a wonderful um, experience. And, and a lot of my people that I use as trustworthy people that advise me, some people told me what not to do. To, well, they told me to do something. not to, Don't do what you think you should do. Just get a brown paper bag. Those boxes, they're too expensive. But actually, his, when he challenged me to go for the brown bag, and I went and priced the brown bag, it was more expensive than the box that I wanted. And the reason was because the guy who was making the box was so excited about making it, he gave me a great price because he really thought this was a great way to think about, you know, the Tiffany, he called it the Tiffany approach to selling a retail product. And he wanted that box and just as much as I did. for kids on right. top of it and, and uh, just, and, and had probably had no idea that you were going to open stores worldwide. No, he didn't have that idea. He was a, a printer out here, but he was so excited. He had grandchildren. He thought the idea was, was so amazing. And he was so glad that I had allowed him to help me, you know, actually from the designs that our artists did to turn it into a three-dimensional product. Um, and he was terrific. And we, we were very, we were very thankful. So the Galleria, by the way, is a mall here in St. Louis. There's gallery, as some people are familiar right. with, the Galleria concept of... It, it amazed me. So you were actually the manager, the owner, the manager, the chief uh, bottle washer, or whatever. Well, I, you did it all. Well, I, I wasn't really the manager. Um, I hired a manager, but I was there every day. We were there did, every day. Did you have a vision that you were expanding at that moment? Yes. Or did you think one store, let's see how it goes? No, I had a, I had a plan for the first 300 stores. I had written a business plan, and I tell young people who are going out to start a business, and they don't do it as detailed as I did this one to have a plan because you have to convince yourself this is the way you're going to spend your life before you can convince the, the banker, the landlord. So I had a very detailed business plan. you were plan. thinking big. Yes. Yeah. I, I knew this was a global opportunity because I'd traveled all over the world and I saw children in airports and children in malls and always with a stuffed, you know, little ones especially with a stuffed animal. And I knew my relationship with my teddy bear that I'd lost when I was 10 years old. And I knew Katie's with her bear, Jack. I knew this was not something that was a fad. This was something that we just had to reinvent how people thought about their teddy bear. Wow, this is an amazing story. And and I, I go back and I think to myself, so many people get into business and they open up their store and they don't have the realization that the store can be bigger than it actually is. You went into business. Now, obviously you had a background in retail and mm -hmm. when you decided you were going into business, your thought wasn't, I'm not going to open a store. I'm going to start a company. Big difference. And it's all about mindset. So uh, I, by the way, have two teddy bears in my office at home. One is my Build-A-Bear workshop bear that my daughters gave me. They made it for me back in, oh gosh, I can't remember how old they were, but that was their gift to me. And it's a little white bear wearing a magic uh, magician's hat and a wand, and it's just a great bear. And then I have my dad's teddy bear because my dad's name was Barry, and he had several bears because uh, his one of his many wives <laughs> had given them, hey, here's the bear. So I just think it's cool. I have one of his bears and I have my Build-A-Bear workshop bear. We're with Maxine Clark. We've been talking about Build-A-Bear. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the people that influenced her and made her uh, take make choices and, and take a path. Who would have known where it would have uh, gone to but to build one of the most successful retail chains in the world? This is Shep Hike, and I'm on Amazing Business Radio. Don't go away. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here. We're back on Amazing Business Radio on CBS and Play It. We're with Maxine Clark. She's given us a great story about how she started and built Build-A-Bear workshops. And now, I, there are so many people that influence Maxine. As we were talking at the break, as we were talking before we started the interview, she was sharing some of these great people. And, and we just need to know there are so many influencers in your life. And I think the difference between many people is it's one thing to meet somebody and hear them, but when you're influenced them, by them, you've accepted them at a different level. And you, these are gifts. And you have the gift of receiving. I think that it truly is a gift. I had probably not thought about it that way so much. 
I knew it was always a gift, but I didn't think about the receiving part so much as I was just really a student, still a student of so many things that I get to look. I'm a voracious reader. I always was. And I go back to saying, and I'm proud of it. I was a nosy. I always wanted to know more. I wanted to know why things worked and how they worked and where did the people go and what did they learn when they were there. I was always into that. And I like sharing um, myself, my experiences with others. Uh, but I had uh, great teachers. It always goes back to my teachers. I loved school from the day I started in kindergarten. And uh, I never liked summer because it, the, there was no school, so I would what sign up for summer school. What was teacher's name? Mrs. Fisher. Isn't that great? I remember mine, Mrs. Oberman. And I actually repeated kindergarten because they changed when you could start school um, to a different age, a different birthday, and so I had to be in kindergarten again. And kindergarten wasn't required. And Mrs. Fisher actually used my second year in kindergarten as a way to teach me to be a leader and to be a helper to her and not to um, use that um, to my advantage either, um, not to my, you know, being um, uh, bossy, but to be able to be uh, truly a leader and to uh, be assertive and aggressive, but not necessarily be Be bossy. a role model. Right. You, you, you could be the role model for the other kids who didn't know right. so much. And she was so great. She was a great teacher and I loved her and I still think about things that she taught me. Uh, but it, but as I went on, and I can remember almost every single teacher I had, I think the most important teachers were my high school teachers, two of them uh, specifically. One was uh, my high school journalism teacher, Mrs. Adams, who passed away about a year and a half ago, um, and a young woman. Um, but I didn't know, you know, when you're in school, you think the teacher is so much older than they really are. Uh, and... Um, she was a great teacher. I was the editor of the high school newspaper, and she every year let the editor reinvent the paper. And she pushed you to limits that you never thought you would have. Um, she was a very dynamic person. And when I was one day, they used to give you your keys to take the car. You could drive the teacher's car to go pick up advertising or proofs or whatever. And I was returning the keys to her in the teacher's lounge. And I walked in, and I heard a conversation. So I stopped so I could hear the conversation. And this is the nosy you Yeah, there's a nosy out. you. Yep. And I didn't want to interrupt their conversation either, so I was being polite and nosy at the same time. And I heard that they were talking about the pay, teacher's pay. And they were complaining that the janitors in our school made more money than the teachers. And I was just blown away by that. I just didn't, I, it was not that the janitors shouldn't make a, a wonderful living, but I just couldn't believe that my teachers that I loved and worshiped so much were making less money than a janitor. And I went, um, brought in the keys and I left and I went and did some research on this. And in those days, this was 1966, you could not Google it and find it out on the internet. You had to really go yeah, and Al do Al Gore hadn't research. invented the no. internet <laughs> right. yet. You had to like go to the that. library and really do research. <laughs> and I went to the Miami Herald and I checked out articles that I could find about teacher pay and union transactions. And I realized this was right. And I wrote an editorial for my high school newspaper that was you know, about this statement. And uh, what I thought was wrong about it, well, the janitors weren't too happy. Um, but my teachers were, you know, really happy that somebody had brought it to daylight. And Mrs. Adams asked me how I, what made me interested in the story. And I told her the story and she laughed. She had this very boisterous laugh. She says, leave it to you. You know, she says, I didn't, we didn't have any idea you were out there. And I said, no, I know. I, I, I thought it was a really heartfelt story and it made me feel passionate about it. And she later submitted that story to the Columbia Scholastic Press Association, which awarded me a scholarship, which allowed me to go to college. And wow. without her, wow. without her doing that, without my parents' permission, you didn't have to have it in those days. Your teachers were it. Um, and I had a wonderful high school journalism teacher. I mean, a high school government teacher, uh, Jeff Rosnick, who was a teacher for about five or six years, and later went on to be a judge in Miami in the Miami uh, family uh, drug courts, and made some amazing. Uh, uh, changes in the way families are are treated, and when situations like this occur, and both of them were uh, influenced for me over a long period of time. But um, when I took Build a Bear public, I wanted to find Mrs. Adams and give her, um, let her know how successful I was, and also give her some share some of this money with her because without her, I would not have had all these bears that were selling. And we, I couldn't, didn't know whether she was Mrs. Adams or Miss Adams, so I had to hire a private detective to find her. And he asked me how old she was. And I said, well, I was 17. She was probably 35. And when I connected with her later, when we did connect, um, I saw that she was not that much older yeah, than me. Yeah, that's when you're a kid. They always yeah. look older. And I asked her. <laughs> and I said, how, how old are you? And she told me. And she was only six years older than me. And she was. I was in her second class the second year she was a wow. teacher. And that was an amazing thing. And all of us felt that way. I have other friends that we grew up and we had her as a teacher and she was incredibly influential. And she was just a two-year teacher. And so um, she encouraged me to give to Teach for America. She said to me, you know, there's an organization called Teach for America. You should support it if you think that you know, young 
young and new teachers are, we need to keep teach people the pipeline going. And she didn't know that I already had was giving to Teach for America. And she, I also didn't know that she collected teddy bears. I didn't know that. That was one of the things that she collected. I was. I bet she got a really nice teddy. She bear did. She you. had a lot of teddy bears over the years, <laughs> and and um, I'm forever thankful for her to pushing my creativity, pushing my thinking outside the box, being willing to um, be confrontational and stand up for what you believe in, and also do the research so that you have. You know, understand both sides of the story, and she was really good about that because you really, unless it was an editorial and you were writing a news story, you had to write it with a, a an open-minded viewpoint. So you gave the facts, strictly the facts, ma'am. And what and, a great lesson for as you become an executive in a company to recognize that in order to you know to assimilate information as well as to share information, uh, you're, who would have thought the journalism background would be really important? It's an I, amazing background. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, young and I was just starting out my career, uh, the guy who hired me, actually not the guy, he was my boss, not the guy who hired me, talked to me about going to law school because I had actually considered that myself. And he said, you know, with your background, you would probably do well in law school. And I thought, why? All the people that I know, my classmates who went on to law school, they had business degrees. They, they understood taxes because they went through accounting and all that. I was actually starting out in journalism, but realized I wanted to get into speech communications because it was more about the uh, performing on radio, television, writing for radio and TV, doing speeches. But it's to me, there's some similar background Very similar. there. And who would have thought? And then he said, yeah, but with your background, it's, it's diverse, it's open-minded. And I thought, okay, I get it, I get it. So you had your, your government teacher as well. Yes, and he was an incredible teacher. He really taught us about our responsibility to vote, to be community citizens, and what it means to be a citizen, not just the history of the United States and how government works, but what our part in government is, that one person can make a difference. And um, I was blown away by that, too. I really, when, when I got to college, and college students were now uh, being, con they were talking about changing the voting age, lowering the voting age to 18 from 21. I got very involved in that in college, and I could hear Mr. Rosnick's voice in my ear all the time talking about it, and I knew that that was an important opportunity for all young people. Of course, we were engaged in a terrible war, and where you could go to war, but you couldn't vote about whether you went to war or not. I thought it was important uh, to um, have a voice and I think that is, um, was an incredibly influential uh, time in my life. It is for most young people. High school is so critically important. Right. And, and that's why right I spend teachers. so much time in education right. today, because I really want to encourage the right people to be teachers and teachers who are doing the work to be as creative and, uh, and flexible to teach for the, for the future and the t jobs of the 21st century. And I think, uh, and my experience with Teach for America, which you introduced me to, was to go to a school of kids that were probably, I would call them uh, city kids, inner city kids, and I met some of the teachers that were involved. And it was one of the most rewarding experiences uh, to go in and spend, uh, just teach kids in a class, uh, you know, tell them my story, but I tried to make it as a lesson as to what you can do. It was, it was just fascinating. So we're gonna get more into that, but there's probably some other people. You had your parents who influenced you tremendously. These two teachers, you had Stanley Goodman and uh, Mr. Farrell. Mm -hmm. um, any other big influencers? Oh, yeah. Well, this oh, is... Oh, and of course, Katie, the 10-year-old. Oh, Katie, and, and still today, she's 28 years old. She's still a, a, a big influence in, in my life. Of course, there's all the people that you work with uh, along the way that maybe don't even know that they're sharing something of value with you because they um, are explaining what they do, and they are teaching you as you go, and that's why you have to always be on the the um, alert for learning because it comes at you all the time, and there's so many opportunities, and I was always... Um, voraciously writing things down. So there's many, many people that I worked with. And when I went to start Build-A-Bear, I didn't know about logistics. I was never a, an accountant. I was a merchandising and marketing person, but I learned more that, than I thought I had by os, you know, the osmosis of mm -hmm. being around smart people. And I knew where to go to get the answers. I, I knew what I didn't know, so to speak. And I was very, that was a really big help to me. But, but one thing, one person way, way, way back when that's really important in all of this is my mother, um, when she was a young woman, um, during World War II, worked for Eleanor Roosevelt. She was one of Eleanor Roosevelt's traveling secretaries. And so she w went worked for her when she traveled, which was often. And my mother was constantly talking about Eleanor Roosevelt. She was talking about the history of America, talking about helping people that were less um, uh, successful than yourself, and how could you help move them forward, uh, sharing. And um, I had the good fortune to meet Eleanor Roosevelt when I was probably about 
six or seven or maybe 10 years old in Miami, Florida. She came and my mother introduced me to her. But I think it, it, it made me see also, you know, again, when I got older and I could look back on that time and say, this is an important person in history. And I got to meet that person. And my mother was always telling me about what she, how Mrs. Roosevelt would do it and what she would think. And even though I didn't set out to be a um, philanthropist so much or, or to be a, a person who worked in not-for-profit businesses, I was a capitalist. I wanted to be very a successful much so. business I mean, you person. Were in retail. You open a very uh, successful It was always in the back of my mind that, that you yeah. have to, you, when you get, you have, you have to give back and give forward. And it was something that I, I longed to do. And the May Company set a tremendous example for me as a young employee, too. The May Company had a foundation that matched your charitable giving. Um, the May Company executives were always involved in community efforts, whether it was the United Way, the Red Cross, the Symphony. Uh, Stanley Goodman was incredibly involved in that. And they set an example that I paid attention to. And I realized that when I had the time and I had the wherewithal, that I would be, I, this was something that I would do. And I got a chance to be exposed to lots of different things. But it came back to always education, always the chances that I had as a young person. And how could I make sure that that we were paying the proper attention as citizens of the world and citizens of the United States to this important industry called educating our children and the people and the quality of people that go into it and how do we get the best and brightest and keep them motivated to continue to teach our children as well as their own professional development to evolve during this time when careers are are changing so rapidly and what's needed for uh, to be successful in the world is also changing. So that's a great cause and I love it that that's what it is and that's what you're passionate about and other people are passionate about other causes, other charities, other other important areas to the world. And I think there's a lesson here, and that is, if you listened, that every successful person that you've encountered and the companies that you've worked with have been charitably minded. I work with an incredible group of clients, and they all have this charitable arm to what they do. Uh, my, one of my favorite clients to work with is Ace Hardware, as you may or may not know. Featured them in my last book. And their whole concept of community is, is being a part of the community. There was one person that said he couldn't compete advertising against some of these big box stores that came in. So he decided to give all of his marketing dollars to charitable events in the community. And he didn't realize that he just thought he was giving back to the people that had loved him for so many years and would hopefully want to love him. But that was just a way to give back. Uh, Ace gives to the uh, Children's Miracle Network. That's their big mm-hmm. charity of choice. Whether it's uh, you know, cancer-related uh, or medical or anything, children, but teaching is so powerful. It is, and I think we take for granted that the world is always going to have great teachers, um, but uh, that is not necessarily so because there's so the cost of college education. It costs as much to be an engineer to go to engineering school as it does to go to be a teacher, and we all know that engineers make a lot more money than teachers. And who's going to sustain those schools of education and pay back student debt if you have it? And also, the pay is you know considerably less than an engineer would make. So what are we going to do for science teachers and math teachers and cultural teachers that teach art and music? It's a it's a real problem for this country as so many baby boomer teachers and principals and school leaders uh, re- retire and leave. Who is going to inspire the next generation of teachers. And, and I don't really, I don't think you have to necessarily go to college to just be a teacher, to be a successful teacher. Uh, but I think that we have to find pipelines of talent, whether it's second career people, young people who graduate from college who want to give back um, as a service for a few years and then find out they love it and this is their passion. Whatever it takes, traditional ways of going to college to be a teacher, they're all val- viable uh, pipelines into an incredible field that we all better pay a lot more attention to whether your children go to private, parochial, or public schools. Wow. Great information, great advice, great thoughts. This is Shep Hyken. We're talking with Maxine Clark. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio. We will be right back. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here on Amazing Business Radio. We're back with Maxine Clark, and we have been talking about uh, some of the big decisions that she had to make. And she made some pretty big ones she's already talked about. She chose to go to college, and rather than go to law school, she chose to go into retail. It was a big choice. Uh, She chose to go to work for a company and then left that company and 
started her own company and lots of decisions. What's the biggest decision? Or actually, let me phrase it a different way. What's the toughest decision that you've had to make? Uh, and it could be recent. It could be way back when. Mm-hmm. I think that the toughest decisions were some of the ones associated with our company and strengthening it during the recession. Uh, some That meant sometimes making some hard decisions about uh, cutbacks in staff and cutbacks in stores. And those were always hard because this was my baby. And this is the, you know, it was on a plan. We had a plan, we had a vision. And I knew that that plan was well thought out. But sometimes uh, life gets in the way and we had to be responsible um, and act accordingly. And I think it was the best decisions that we made um, because the company is thriving and also um, because the world has changed. I mean, the internet has come on and changed a lot of things about retailing. Uh, not so much about our company because it's a hands-on experience. But the number of moms that used to come to the mall with their children has been cut down dramatically because they can buy so many things on the internet. Right. But that's less time they come to the mall and just walk by a Build-A-Bear store. So we have to make sure that every store really is creating a great experience and is really, really valuable to our chain of stores. So we had to make some cutbacks, and those were hard. Right, and it's hard to build a bear on the internet. Well, for a child it is, for, for sure. For a child it is. Well, you probably do something where you can... Well, we definitely have a web presence, but it's Mm -hmm. not the same. Uh, And we know that children really aren't supposed to shop on the Internet. Uh, Small children and our customers are really in that core age of 5 to 10 years old Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. And they they don't have the access to the credit cards and all the things that they would need in order to make that transaction happen. So some tough decisions people make are are decisions that change their life. But then uh, once you get into life, if, if you want to call it that, once you get into your business, the tough decisions you make affect people. Closing stores affects people, people that you love and you care about. And now you've said, hey, we have to close. You're going to have to go find something else. Maybe you found a place for them elsewhere. But those are tough decisions. We were talking over the break about Blueprint for Summer. And I know this kind of is an extension of your passion for helping kids and uh, just, you know, the Teach for America mm-hmm. uh, concept. Go ahead and, and tell us about this because well, this well, is actually, brilliant. Actually, um, Blueprint is really a product of my uh, desire to um, retire without retirement uh, and to really um, have an impact on the world to retail, what I call retailize education, using the things that I learned in the retail business about customer interaction and customer Uh, the importance of the customer to apply it to some of the problems that we have in our communities for education. And one of the things that happens to children, especially children in under-resourced communities over the summer, is they lose learning. Uh, They don't have things to do that are productive. uh, And they, some of the things that they had at the end of the year, by the time they come back in the fall, it's gone. But there's tremendous amount of summer activities in our own community here in St. Louis. And how do we take that information and aggregate it so that everyone not just people in the more uh, affluent zip codes, but everyone in St. Louis can have access to the information that will help their children be more successful. And that's Blueprint for Summer. It's a mobilized app. It has um, almost 2,000 summer programs, um, many of them free. Um, Over 25% of them are scholarships available, science, math, art, dance, sports, um, you name it is on there. You know, keep the kids busy, their minds occupied. I mean, whether it be summer camp or summer school. And I remember summer school for me, I went to summer school classes as a kid. And it wasn't because the teacher said, you need to go to summer school if you want to be ready for next year. No, I went to summer school to take a science class. And it was a fun science class. And ironically, I had that same teacher for science several years later. And you want to know what was really crazy and cool about it? is that that class in a school was just as much fun as the summer class. And uh, I think that's wonderful what you're doing. So we're just about running out of time. And I always ask everybody that that is on the show, is there one thing, one idea you can share with us that you'd want us to know as we walked out and we finished and maybe something that might even change your lives? Yes, I was so fortunate a few years ago um, to be a, a speaker at an after-school program here in St. Louis in Jennings, which is just a town over from Ferguson. So Jennings and, is not what you would call the affluent zip No, code. a very, very modest, modest community. They don't even use transportation for kids. You have to walk to school if you live there. And I was invited uh, to come and speak to the children after school, and I love to go and talk about Build-A-Bear. And one little girl stood up and asked me a question, and she told me her name. Uh, her name was Tia, and she was six years old and in the first grade, and she said, Miss Clark, do you believe that all dreams can come true? 
And I, of course, I was I had a little choke up for a minute, but I did believe that because my dreams had all come true beyond my wildest expectations. But as she started to ask me her question, so many kids were laughing at her. I realized this was a child who asked tough questions. So I said, Tia, what is your dream? And she said, my dream is to find the sun, S-U-N. And I thought to myself, I'm looking at a little Bill Gates. I wasn't thinking about the sun very much when I was her age. And I told her that the way you could find something is to learn about it and to have knowledge of it and to be close to it. And we could check out books and I could introduce her to a newscaster that was a weathercaster and that she could study mountain climbing and all kinds of things that would help her know the sun. And after that, everybody stopped laughing and the kids all asked me questions about science. And so I understood that acknowledgement was important. But on my way home that night, I was really thinking about her question. And I asked myself the question, had I found my son? I had a successful business. I had all the money I could possibly need to live the rest of my life. But was the, what, had I found my son, my true north, my, my place, my dream? And I realized that there was still lots of time for me to do some other things that might impact the world differently. And that I could, in fact, um, rethink where I was, and even in spite of my age, in fact, make even a greater contribution because I had a lot of experience that might benefit other people, including the important children in our community that want to have um, and deserve to have a much higher quality education than they're getting right now. Wow. I mean, I, as I sit here and listen to you, I think of you now as a giver. And I don't care how successful you are. One of the things that has made you successful is that you are constantly giving, whether it be giving of yourself, uh, giving opportunity, uh, you're being creative and building a business that so many people can participate in. And, and I've been out to your offices. And, and by the way, if you ever come to St. Louis, uh, if you have a chance to go, and I don't know how you get in to get a tour of the Build-A-Bear offices. Email me at maxine at buildabear.com. Okay, you hear that, maxine at buildabear.com. You will go into an environment that's truly different, it's unique, where people love Maxine, and they love the people they work with, and they're dogs. You're allowed to bring your dog to work into a big building. Yes. This is pretty cool. And uh, But more important than that, I think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about you. Um, it started with your parents exposing you to what other parents might not expose you to, that that whole idea of, of what you're your mom did, and I mean, she was a bit of an activist, and, oh, and you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, and then your teachers, and uh, the mentors you've had through life. And by the way, mentorship, I think that's one of the things you've done. You are trying, you, you say retailize school, meaning, or education, meaning make it fun, because if the kids are having fun, then, you know, they'll just like, more. they'll learn more, just like a customer would want to buy more, they'll want to learn more. Um, and where was I going with that comment? <laughs> but your mentors, like Stanley Goodman, is now affecting not retail, but education. And one of the reasons is, is because you've opened up and you've received and you've listened in a totally different way. So you are a treat, you're a gift, and I thank you for taking the time to spend it with us today. My name's Shep Hyken, and you've been listening to Maxine Clark's story, an amazing story, and this is why we call it Amazing Business Radio. And I always love to finish every episode by my favorite three words, and that is this, always be amazing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.